Good afternoon, good morning. This is Mark Johnson from Loyalty360. Wanted to welcome everyone back to our Authors and Academia series. In this series, we look at the topics and trends that impact customer channel and brand loyalty from a unique lens to give an enhanced perspective on the industry. I recently had the privilege to sit down with renowned author Tom Nichols about his best-selling book, The Death of Expertise, which delves into how the American public has grown increasingly hostile towards expertise. Tom is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and a junk professor at the Harvard Extension School, among many other titles. Here's the first part of our interview. What I thought we'd do is you know, kind of have an open discussion. I was going to craft some questions, but just kind of open discussion about your book. I think it's an amazing book. Uh, I study behavioral psychology, you know, and behavioral psychology is very important to customer loyalty. And I think our audience could have a very uh, unique interest in your book. Actually, we just got off a call. We have weekly calls with some of our brand. I think about 15 or 16 on this call just now. We talk about emotional loyalty and how difficult it is to understand, right? Because uh, just truly an expert on it is interesting. But I think from a, you know, a, 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 the depth of expertise, I think it's a, it's challenging for a lot of people, right? For understanding technology process and, you know, the people that you talk about in your book and read others that, that have the, the least capability, your least capacity are the ones that think they're the smartest, right? So, you know, uh, you know, maybe this is going to start off, uh, you know, would love to get your perspective on why you wrote the book, uh, you know, what the book means to, uh, you know, our society in general, or kind of, you know, what can we learn from it at a high level? Sure. Well, I wrote the book. <clears throat> I, um, I wrote the book, not because I was worried that people didn't trust experts. That's normal. That's, that's, and that goes back a long way. Right. That's a natural thing between, you know, lay people and professionals that, you know, goes back a, a thousand years. What was different, the thing that I started to pick up on was that people started thinking they were smarter than experts, that they were actually lecturing back to experts. Um, a, young, a young person who had a disagreement with me about Russia, and I've been, you know, I'm a Russia guy, I've been doing that for 35 years. And he said, Tom, I don't think you understand Russia. Let me explain this to you. And I just stopped him right there. And that's actually when I wrote the, the article that became the book. Because I just stopped him there. I said, wait, how do we get to a point where, you know, somebody who didn't know where Russia was three months ago is now going to explain Russia to somebody who's been doing this for 35 years. And right. I, I, I had a, um, you know, I'll, I'll name drop for a minute and say that when I was on the Bill Maher show, and I said to Bill Maher, I said, I'm sure this is like when people walk up to you and say, Bill Maher, you're a comedian. I have some tips for you on timing. And he and Mar laughed and he said, people do that to me all the time. He said, that actually happens where, you know, people walk up to a guy who's been a comedian for, you know, 30, 40 years as a hit show. And they say, Bill, you're a comedian. I have a couple of jokes. I have some tips for you on how to be funnier. And it is remarkable how often people do this. Um, I, I interviewed a lot of doctors for this. And he said, it's not that this one doctor said, it's not that people come in and say, look, I don't trust your opinion and I want a second opinion or I want you to tell me, you know, why I should do the thing you're saying. They walk in and say, here's what I've got. Here's what's wrong with me. And here's what you're going to do. And here's right. the procedure you're going to do. And here's what you're going to prescribe. I mean, when you get to that level of narcissism, and that's really what the book is about. Yeah. It's about narcissism. It's people, you know, just believing I am, I am competent at everything and I am never wrong. And I mean, it is really a, almost like a, um, a society of, you know, 12 year olds 
I know stuff. I know how to do things. You can't tell me. You're not the boss of me. Um, and I think that that has become widespread. And that's what really made me write the book because I think that's really dangerous. Well, so why is that happening? I'm actually trying to look for a, a quote. And why is that happening? You, you know, you talk about it, it. It could be the internet, but it was happening before then. Um, and, and the kind of vitriol that people has. And, and you notice in social media where everyone thinks they're an expert at everything, especially now going through COVID, right? Everyone has a, a, a master's degree from, uh, you know, uh, Johns Hopkins on virology, right? They have a PhD in behavioral science from, uh, you know, Penn, and they've got their uh, Kennedy School of, you know, doctorate in, in, in public policy. But it, it's just amazing. Everyone thinks they're an expert in anything. But uh, and one of the things I think was very pressing in your book, and I was trying to look up another quote in it, you talk about people have some facts, right? But taking facts and kind of, you know, stitching them together into a, you know, a prescient argument, a prescient perspective is so rare right now. They spout some fact and it could, it's usually not even tangential to what they're talking about, correct? But it's, but it's not about facts. It's about feelings. It's about status. It's about self-actualization. It's about, um, you know, feeling like you are respected and important. And the problem with expertise in a in a narcissistic, hyper-egalitarian society, expertise is, by its nature, exclusive. Um, I tell one of the incidents I relate in the book is the miracle on the Hudson, right? Sully Sullenberger. He, now, co-pilots are usually the people who fly the plane. Right. That's how co-pilots become captains. They take off from LaGuardia. They have this terrible bird strike. The engine goes out, and Sullenberger says, my aircraft. My plane, right. He, it's just what a captain would say. He says, my aircraft. And he grabs, grabs the stick and he flies the plane. It wasn't like, now, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings and I hope you understand, but maybe I should, you know, it, in a crisis, expertise rules, right? My aircraft. And I think people just don't want to be treated that way because they feel like it's exclusionary. They don't realize this is just the natural division of labor. We have been raised in a society and in an education system, which I think is part of it, in a very therapeutic culture where we constantly are asking each other, how do you feel? Are you happy? Are you okay? You feel respected? You think others are listening to you? None of it has to do with, do you know what you're talking about? Is your input, you know, appropriate on this matter? You know, we take the things that are important in our interpersonal relationships, like are we getting along well? Are we being polite to each other? And we try and transfer that to things that are really kind of harder empirical questions like my aircraft. And I think that that's been, you know, a disaster up and down the line. People really hate it when the, you know, the guy with the doctorate in virology says, well, you know, that's not how a virus works. And people say, well, who are you to talk down to me? Well, I'm not talking down to you. I assume that, you know, if I'm sitting here with a PhD in virology, it's because you need my advice. Right. Uh, but don't you think that's funny too? First thing, I found the quotes. I actually use these on Facebook once in a while, so I'm not getting in trouble with copyright infringement. But you know, I think the thing that I use the most is so as you don't post the whole book, we're fine. No, no, I have, I have like a little page right there, like two, two quotes. <laughs> I think the two most the things that I really like is the example at Dartmouth where you arrive and they're in a, they're talking about uh, 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 space missile systems, right? Defense. Right. Systems. That that actually was not me. So if you look, remember in the book. 
That was a story um, that was, le- I, I should probably just tell the story for your listeners. That was a legendary story among the faculty. There was an astrophysicist named Robert right. Gastro. Like, you know, like this was like a, he wasn't a Nobel laureate, but he was like that in that weight class. And he was a big fan of space-based missile defenses in the 80s, which of course, a lot of the more liberal kids at Dartmouth didn't like because it was Reagan's idea and, you know, so Jastrow was giving this lecture on, well, here's why I think you can do it. And this, um, this sophomore was, at least the way I heard the story, was a sophomore. We don't have graduate students in Dartmouth. And, um, you know, it was about 19, 20 years old. And this young man is arguing with Jastrow. And Jastrow's, you know, walking him through it. And finally, the kid says, well, your guess is as good as mine. Right. As, as he's, and Jastrow pulls him right up short. And by the way, faculty of both the right and the left liberal, conservative, it didn't matter. This was a teacher story. Jastrow stops the kid and says, no, no, no. My guesses are much, much better than yours. Even when I'm guessing, they're better right. guesses than yours. But, but, but that's the truth, right? And then I think you go on to the next page too, and you talk about you know, respecting a person as opinion doesn't mean granting equal respect to that person's knowledge whether national defenses or our wise policy is still debatable, what hasn't changed is that the guesses of an expert astrophysicist and a college sophomore are not equivalently good. I mean, that right. is so, they're not the same. Right, but, but we have a, a, a kind of a, a belief that they are. And, and it's interesting. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if you've read Loser Think, but Loser Think it, it's kind of a unique book as well. The the gentleman who wrote the, the Dilbert piece, you know, he, he talks about most people have a kind of a modality of thinking. And they think that if, they, if they've been trained in one aspect, they don't, they can think through everything. But we as a society really can't think very well anymore. Do, do, you, do you think that's a huge issue? I mean, we think right. we We're not, do. We don't, we don't emphasize critical thinking in higher right. education, in part because um, critical thinking is uncomfortable. Um, I start to get into this when I teach my writing courses. I teach courses on writing for, you know, social sciences. And... Um, you know, it really, you really have to kind of beat it out of people that I think, I believe, uh, you know, that these are not good expository. I mean, something that those of us who came from an early generation, this was just beaten out of us and it was not even controversial. Um, you have to remember that you have generations now, multiple generations of students who have been taught that their views are very, very important and as good as anybody else's, and that, they, that there is no thought that they shouldn't express. Um, and I think that became a particular issue with the generation that came of age in the 1990s, because they were the blog, this is not a millennials or Gen X thing, this was the blogger generation. And part of what happened here is that the barriers to entry in the game of expressing your views became so low that anyone could do it. I mean, I, can, I remember when I was a young assistant professor and, you know, like in my, I started teaching when I was 28. And uh, in those first few years, I had one op-ed in the Christian Science Monitor and I had one letter to the editor that was actually published in the Wall Street Journal. Both of those, I thought I, had, I was king of the world because right. I had survived the narrow eye of the needle. A few years after that, um, I and a colleague got a letter to the editor published in the New York Times. And in those days, the New York Times called you up. They verified who you were. 
they asked for your phone number. I mean, for like a two paragraph letter to the editor on, you know, because the real estate on the printed page was, was not cheap. I mean, they had to dole it out very carefully. Now that we have scads of bandwidth and blogs and internet providers, you know, people routinely say to me, well, I'm a writer too. And I said, really, you know, where, where have you, you know, where have I seen you? Well, I have a blog and I've done some posts on Medium. Well, you no, know, you are someone who has written stuff, but you're not a writer. You haven't worked with an editor. I hate to be snotty about this, but you haven't gotten paid for it. Um, you know, that's like me saying, well, you know, I'm a baseball player because I, you know, played some pickup games. Right. And, and that barrier became so low that everyone said, well, I have an opinion and it looks good on a screen. And when I print it out, it's in 12 point times New Roman. So it must be real. But, but, but that's a, that's a very uh, impactful point, right? If you go back to Gutenberg and kind of how the printing press, I mean, most people don't know the story of the Gutenberg printing press, right? We were in uh, the times of the plague, right? People were burning manuscripts from, you know, the, what was considered the heretical non-religious groups at that time, right? So they were trying to figure out a way, so the quality then it was all handwritten, but right? so quality had to be good, right? Because you, it took a long time to write a book and now when you start getting deeper, so the quality starts to decline there, continues to decline, correct? So everyone thinks they're an expert. As you said, if you have a blog post that gets, you know, a thousand reads or a thousand followers, you get that dopamine rush and connect to your, but, but it's not though, because back in publishers. Well, just, to, <clears throat> just to expand the Gutenberg point, you know, um, we went through an age where, yeah, you know, there are vanity publishers, for example, right? Uh, you know, people say, oh, I've written a book, my father, God rest his soul. Some old Greek guy that he knew decided that at, at 91 years old, he was going to write a book and gave a copy to my father. And he said, well, this, this person wrote a book, you know, here. And I opened it up and it was a self-paid-for printed vanity press thing of like newspaper clippings and notes. You know, here's the obituary of a guy I knew. He was a good guy. And I remember saying to my father, dad, this isn't a book. Um, but even there, to the point I'm trying to make is even there, it costs you money to try to exercise your vanity. Today, you can do all of this practically for free. I mean, all you need is a, you know, a, a, I don't know, what do people use, a GoDaddy or, you know, um, a, any kind of web hosting. And suddenly, well, I'm a writer. You know, I have views. No, you, you, it's, that's the equivalent of walking around with a bullhorn, you know, shouting stuff randomly at people. Uh, in the book, I say that the 21st century is the equivalent of everybody basically having their own radio station now. Um, right. and, and I think that, you know, I am a bit, I, I'm sure some of the people listening will say, this is one of those old white guys who's all about gatekeepers. Uh, to which I say, uh, you're damn right I am about the gatekeepers. I personally, I had a blog. I took it down because I realized um, I was writing about a lot of trivial stuff. I was not doing my best work. And I just, I need an editor. I don't ever, I have said for the rest of my career, I will never work without an editor again, um, period. You know, Tiger Woods has a swing coach. Every writer needs an editor. But the other thing about an editor is it keeps you humble. I mean, I just published a piece today. My editor at USA, I, the, the, there was a line in it that I said, told her was gold. I said, come on, that line's gold. And she said, no, it isn't. You know, <laughs> and it's gone. I mean, you will never see that line in print now. And she was right. Everybody needs that. 
Well, but 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 see, that's a very I, I don't know that's a very germane point to this discussion, right? So I have issues with the kind of declining intellect as we have as a society, right? Everyone thinks they're the smartest person in the room. They always want to argue. I'm not a writer. I have a lot of great thoughts. I'm a great speaker. I get paid to speak in public. Probably get paid to public. I know a lot about customer loyalty. I know a lot about behavioral science. It's what I do to talk to smart people like you. But you know, I don't claim to be a writer. And but I know what my weaknesses are. But people always want to pick fights. I mean, I've got a graduate degree in statistics. I have a graduate degree in finance. So I know numbers pretty well, right? I, I can customer loyalty. The numbers. I deal numbers all the day, every day. But people want to pick fights with you about things that they know nothing about. They could be stay-at-home mom, right? They could be uh, a firefighter. And not because they've been trained to. Correct. Because this culture has taught them that everyone should be respected equally. And we don't understand that there's a difference between saying, you know, we are all equal before the law, before the constitution, in the eyes of God, you know, no parent loves one kid more than another. That's fine. That's different than saying we are in fact equal. Uh, you know that we are equally talented, equally handsome, equally athletic, equally smart. That is simply not reality. And we have transported. And in the book, I point out that C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, the great writer of Christian apologetics, he said this over sixty years ago that people have come to believe that democracy does not mean a system of government. It is, it is literally a bumper sticker that says, I'm as good as you at everything. So, that's just stupid. That's just a lie. Right. Well, how do we fix that, though? Is that conditioned by parents? Is that, I mean, how do we fix that as a society? Because it's, it's very, I believe, it's very destructive to industries like in a customer loyalty, right? If, if, if you don't have the right people on your team, we were, just, we were just talking earlier today with a group about having, expanding your team, getting the right people on the team that have that expertise because it may be lacking. I mean, I think it's very, uh, uh, it, it denigrates our society. I mean, you look at some of the challenges we're going through now where you, we, you know, some of the social causes where I think they're just so off base because they're not truly looking at it holistically. You know, it, how do we fix that more, as a society? I think, I, I think, you know, a little more humility, um, and I, I say this as somebody whose public persona is certainly no one would ever describe me as characterized by humility, um, but a little more intellectual humility about what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, I think for corporate, as a corporate lesson, this is where I sometimes bring up the, the metaphor of the fox and the hedgehog. That, you know, the hedgehog, the, the, there's an old expression, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows but one. And in every successful organization, you have hedgehogs, the people that are, have knowledge a mile deep on one thing, right? The, the guy you turn to and say, you know, system architecture, this is the guy. Um, but you also have foxes who may not be as deep in each of those, but who can go 10,000 feet up and get a better overview across those specializations. Um, you know, the first time I ever encountered this, I was a grad student and I didn't want to study. I was finishing my PhD and uh, my, I had, there was this advisor I had at Georgetown who said, uh, yeah, you know, you should stop studying all that Russia guns and bombs stuff because that's all I did. Uh, you know, I was one of those guys like, ask me how tall, you know, a Soviet nuclear weapon is and I can give you all the facts and figures. He said, you need to be broadened out and study, you know, Christian theology or, you know, um, 19th century British liberalism or whatever it was. And I said, why? And he said, look, specialists rise quickly and stop. Generalists rise and rise. 
So I'm a big fan of the generalist and the specialist making peace with each other about the division of labor in the professional world instead of saying, because I was really good at system architecture or coding or whatever it was that I'm good at, therefore I'm good at everything. That's, that is the other myth that we have now internalized, that being good at one thing means that I can then externalize my competence to everything I touch. The military in particular, I would argue, again, important for people to understand, I'll speak for the military or the US government. Um, military officers, I think, get this disease where they're told, you're a colonel. And if you weren't good at everything and capable of handling anything, you wouldn't be a colonel. And that, you know, they get in over their heads on a lot of things. I mean, I work in an educational institution where I've had military officers say, you know, well, I can design an educational program too, because I'm a successful officer. That's simply not true. And people in all walks of life have to get over that. I'm an engineer, so I know a lot about politics. I'm a doctor, so I know a lot about home building. Um, you know, it, it really is a disease. And I think, as you pointed out a second ago, Mark, um, when it really becomes crazy is when the person who is not really an expert in anything says, um, I'm an expert in everything. Right. You know, I'm a 22-year-old I'm student or I'm a stay-at-home mom, you know, and stay-at-home moms are experts in parenting. Right. Absolutely. You know, talk to them about that. But, you know, to say, okay, and I'm watching TV and I will have an opinion about everything. That's partly the interactivity and those lowered, the interactivity of social media and news and the thing we talked about earlier about those lowered bars. I hate it. I cannot tell you how much I hate it <clears throat> when uh, a Sunday TV show, I think it was, I think Fox News Sunday used to do this, where they turn and said, well, we want to hear from you. We're going to take your Facebook questions. And I'm like, don't do this. I'm not interested in, you know, what the guy in Oshkosh wants to ask the Secretary of State. You're a journalist. You've been studying these issues. Ask intelligent questions. I'll follow along. But we now live on polls and interactivity and yeah. Facebook posts. It's, it's, it's madness. Well, and it's a big thing for brands who are marketers, correct, right? It's all about the experience, right? It's all about making products that customer want. They're going to have an emotional connection to. And it's not, you're not pushing forward, right? You're, you're always trying to listen to engage the, you know, the expectations and understandings of this diverse set of customers. It's very difficult to do. And, and we have, it, I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, I think one of the problems in, in what you're saying right there is we have to stop thinking of each other all the time and everywhere as clients and customers. That is especially true in education, my field. Right. No, you're right. I mean, you make some great points in the book about that, where people are you know, tra tra traversing all over the country to look at five, 10, 15 different schools. And, you know, they're, they're spending so much money and it's all about, you know, who has the nicest uh, gym right now, who has the nicest pizza. Yeah. Who's who had good pizza in the quad? Um, I mean, I, I work, I, I had a colleague who has since retired, but I used to argue with him for years. He'd say, well, you know, we're an executive level educational program. So our students are really more like our clients. And I, you know, I had a colleague once who just dropped her notebooks and stood in the middle of one of these discussions. And she said, you know what, if the students are that smart, let them teach the course. And that really, you know, that just, it was like a big record scratch moment, right? And everything just kind of stopped. Um, and I think that that's just, it's okay for the professors to profess and the students to study. 
um, you know, of, that's a temporary but important relationship. And I think that's true throughout society. It's okay to be the patient and for the doctor to be the doctor. It's okay for the pilot to be the pilot and you to be the passenger. Um, I, I, t- I wrote a piece sometime after the book came out. I had a house fire here. Um, and, you know, I had a house full of experts after that. Plumbers, electricians, contractors, carpenters. Those guys knew what they were doing. They asked me for basic guidance. Do you want this wall over here? Do you want that wall over there? Do you want an outlet here? Do you want it there? But I didn't follow them around saying, now what kind of wiring is going to be there? I don't know the answer to those questions. I try, I assume that if they were master, licensed master electricians by the state of Rhode Island, that they know what they're doing. And if they didn't know what they're doing, their work was shabby, I could sue them and I had recourse through the courts. There is no point in walking around and saying, you know what, I know a lot about electricity. Because I don't. And it's okay to be that guy. It's okay. Right. But I, I remember the day the, of the fire, all these guys were standing around and I was standing there trying to say, now, uh, well, you know, finally one of the guys took me by the shoulders and kind of moved me out of the side. And he said, yeah, um, we'll get back to you about all that. But in the meantime, I need to move you here so the chimney doesn't fall on you. <laughs> and at that moment, my control freak impulse is why I said, you know what? I'm going to go take my wife, get a coffee. It was the dead of winter when the fire happened. I said, wife get a coffee here's my number you guys need a decision on cost or placement call me the rest of it i trust that you guys know what you're doing yeah i'm mark johnson from loyalty 360 thanks for joining us for the first part of our interview with author tom nichols about his best-selling book the death of expertise please check back with loyalty 360 soon for the second part of my very interesting and compelling interview with tom 